If I told you half the things I've heard about this Jabba the Hutt, you'd probably shot some of them. Hello, Blabba fans, and you are very welcome to episode 31 of Blabba the Hutt. The illustrious Jabba bids you welcome and will gladly pay you the reward of 25,000. So the only thing that you can tell me is that I will find Jabba at Jabba's palace. We are rolling along here in 2023 and we have another two for this episode. So... You know us, we are Kate and Gary. What's going on, Gary? We're back again. We've got to stop meeting like this, Kate. These uh, these interviews have been recording uh, really frequently now, aren't they? I know. We're, we're getting on a roll here. Well, we are. I mean, we've got so much on and we've got so many upcoming episodes that we haven't released yet. And of course, this twofer is part of our build up to Dublin Comic Con, which is two weeks away. Yeah. I know. And it's things coming really fast. Are and things are really coming thick and thick and fast but in between that myself and you are still trying to record interviews with other guests but also we have uh, three live shows to plan for which is <laughs> which is exciting as well yeah blaba is busy <laughs> yeah so it's uh, it's exciting times but it, but it's been fun it's been great being able to meet up and and to get a uh, Get, get back into the, the normality that we used to have. We've been really talking to some quite interesting folks too. Mm-hmm. And this twofer, by the way, what a what a two episodes. It's gonna make for such an interesting listen for uh for our for our listeners. So Kate, do you wanna break down this is part one of two? What this episode was right. like, Kate? So this episode we talked to a legend, two legends. <laughs> yeah. of different of different eras really though oh, um yeah. so we talked to the man who shot luke skywalker kim simmons and an incredible digital artist um what else is on his resume gary oh i mean he's photographer. a photographer he's, he's a photographer yeah. he, ken has such a wide wide-ranging skill ken coleman Gary, can you tell us a little bit? Of, you're kind of the one who facilitated these interviews. So can you just give us a brief overview about how that came to be before we get to the actual interview? Well, in fact, we actually have to thank Mr. Ken Coleman for making this possible <laughs> because Ken was actually at a convention in the in the States. Ken's work is becoming more and more popular as time has gone on and he's getting a lot of recognition and rightly so across the pond for all of his work with the the masters of the universe uh, things he does mm -hmm. obviously that's just one part of of what ken does but his work on the masters of the universe stuff has gotten a lot of attention and at that convention who happened to be sitting pretty much at the boot <laughs> next to him was none other than the man who shot luke skywalker the the man the myth the legend mr ken simmons and the two of them got talking and built up a rapport and myself and Kim were just, uh, myself and Ken were just chatting as, as you normally do. And Kim's name came up, and I just put it out there saying, "Do you think you would be interested in a, a two-part interview? Because as you suggested, from different eras, it would be great to see two different perspectives." And we were able to facilitate it, and it was one of the most interesting interviews we've we've ever done. I mean, the knowledge base alone was just incredible. It was a super fun one, and. They are both such nice, genuinely nice, like 
personable guys. So it was a pleasure getting to interview them. It was, and I believe they're actually going to come on again for individual episodes, and we're going to get more in depth and chat about what they do and their their processes in in much more detail. So we're really really excited for that one. Yes, awesome. All right, so without further ado, let's play that interview. So Ken, uh, thanks for taking the time to stop by and have a chat with us. I know we've been trying to organize this with yourself and Kim for a while, so we really do uh, appreciate you guys stopping by for what will be a, a very, very interesting episode. Our previous episode featured, uh, it was a series of composers from behind the scenes of many of the the Star Wars animated series. So to sit down and talk with yourself and Kim is, is going to make for a fantastic uh, episode. So first of all, uh, how are you getting on? Um, I'm grand. Thank you very much. Um, thanks for having me. Um, I'm all good here. Just trying to keep my voice um, at a, a good low um, and clear because I have a young fella going to bed. So, you know, so I can't be screaming. <laughs> trying to keep the... We'll try to keep the fun to a minimum so we're not screaming our heads off here. But um, for for those who are, are unaware, Ken, can you give us a little bit about your background and an introduction? So who is uh, Ken Coleman? Um, well, I'm not going to go third person anyway, but um, <laughs> I'm Ken Coleman and I'm, well, basically I'm a digital artist who focuses mostly on pop culture. Um, I actually lecture in game art design and um, animation and creative broadcast and filmmaking for TUS and Clonmel Digital Campus. And sometimes I'm on campus in the Limerick School of Art and Design. And that's where I actually trained um, as an artist. And going back that far, the beginnings, um, I actually used to sit beside Jacqueline Shelby in college. Um, which was great for the slags because uh, at the time it wasn't really, it was kind of frowned upon to be doing comic book and fantasy art, you know. Um, and I, don't, I suppose I don't have to tell you guys who Declan Shelby is, you know, um, very, very, very successful comic book artist from Ennis. So, um, but this show is not about um, about him. So well, he, he's gone, he's gone. So um, that's where I started out. And I remember I was working in The Gathering, which is um, a shout out to Gary Jackson, um, which is a game shop, Dungeons and Dragons, Battletech, Magic the Gathering, that kind of stuff here in Limerick after college. And I remember a box came, and I was big into Photoshop and stuff in college, and a box came in one day for the new Magic the Gathering cards. And I looked at the artwork on the side, and I realized that it was like silhouettes of clothes pegs to make a, a bridge and some kind of stock photos of buildings that look like the Vatican. And I saw it and I went, I could do that. And about two weeks later, I handed in my notice and decided to become a serious freelance graphic designer slash artist slash photographer. Um, so I, I mostly ended up in the field of photography here in Limerick for a long time and did a six years working in the windows of Brown Thomas doing design as well. And after the recession, came a master's. And after the master's, came teaching. Uh, lecturing so but in the meantime I've always been carrying on my own progress my own process in my artwork and I was very lucky through um, actually through Gary in the gathering and uh, because he's big into Battletech he made contact with the guys in Battletech and they contacted me to do artwork for their book covers and rule books so I've been working with Battletech guys for about three years and Funnily enough, through my friends as well, they got me in contact with one of the members of Morbid Angel. 
and I started working on stuff for him. Then he went back to Morbid Angel and did two album covers. And when he went back to Morbid Angel, they asked me to do their last album cover. So um, I did the artwork for Kingdom Sustained. And um, I've been working closely. I would, well, I've been working on some stuff in the last five or six years with the Cranberries. And I did the last album cover for the Blizzards, not the, the, the previous Blizzards album in 2018, 2019. And I think that my bucket list, I guess, was that um, I got to do the artwork for the autobiography of Mark Taylor, who created He-Man and Skeletor, which are my favorite, favorite characters. Still collect He-Man, do He-Man art all the time. And the reason I do it all the time now is because um, this year I ended up doing two audio plays for Mattel, approved by Mattel Germany. So... I guess the bucket list for any artist is to go from fan artist to officially licensing artist, you know, to do something official for your brand. So I got to do those two um, covers. And I think we have more stuff lined up this year. And I also do, you guys might know, I've done a load of cosplay photography and artwork and the covers for the Dublin Comic-Con brochures for the last number of years as well. So I think that kind of sums it up. And I think, Kate, this is the first time we've had some uh, proper mention of Masters of the Universe. <laughs> I know we're we're always accused of crossing the streams, but it is nice to have some uh, some Masters of the Universe uh, speaking there, which we will get onto as well. But growing up, Ken, was there ever sort of one particular area that you wanted to go into? Like, were you always focused on being a, a photographer or was it digital art for you? How did you um, end up becoming so uh, multifaceted effectively at what you do? I guess... Um... Well, growing up from about the age of six, uh, I wanted to be an artist uh, doing, of course, everyone goes through the phases like, will I be a comic book artist? Or I, I first I wanted to work for Disney, you know, I wanted to be an animator. And actually, I got into Ballyfermot out of my, um, from my first CAO um, for the Leaving Cert, but complications and logistics, I decided just to go to the Limerick School of Art and Design. And I think that's where the most, the multifaceted fascination came from. Because when you're in there, you're learning a bit about all the different things, techniques, uh, sculpture, drawing, painting, printing, photography. And I remember actually, just comes to mind now, in transition year, I went to the graphic design department to do my work placement, my work experience. And I remember creating, we, it, was, it was a project on call cards at the time. And I did a clear call card with just a chip on it and a small picture of a wizard. And the whole idea was that it would be a call card to God because God is translucent and we don't have a, a vision really clear of what God is. And then the, the lecturer, Pat Green, turns around and goes, well, where did you get the image of the, uh, the little God-like wizard? And I said, oh, I caught it out of a Magic Gathering card. And she, I was, no, just put it in context. I'm 15 in a class with a bunch of 22-year-olds and she ate me alive for using copyrighted material without consent. Wow. So that was my first rule, my first lesson in copyright at the age of 15. And what was great about that is when I started to learn all about digital, digital techniques, because I did an Erasmus in Stockholm and I got heavily influenced by the guys in industrial design and graphic design and the use of Photoshop because I was painting. So they were photo one of the guys was scanning my stuff for photographing it and showing me how to use Photoshop. And then I got obsessed with digital cameras because I wanted to create my imagery using all my own materials, my own stock photography, my own model shoots. Um, and it always came back from that moment where 
um, someone had given me um, an ass kicking for um, at the age of 15 about what copyright is, you know, so that was one of the best lessons I ever got in life. Um, so that's where the fascination and just it kind of happened then because I bought a good camera. My friends were getting married or they needed photos for bands. They're like, oh, you have a good camera. It was never like, oh, you're a good photographer. It was, uh, you have a camera. Will you come take photos? And uh, then you become accidentally almost like become a good photographer and got more and more into it, made friends with other professionals, got some advice off some of the guys here who do sports photography and journalism. And that actually led to me working with uh, Hot Press for a while as a photographer here in Limerick doing gigs. And that went from Hot Press to working for, I was doing some gigs for Getty around the time of um, Arthur's Day. So I got to photograph. Um, do you remember when Arthur's Day, you didn't know where the bands were going to play and what city was going to get mm -hmm. who? So I got to photograph um, one year. I was sent to Galway and I got Manic Street Preachers, which was the big band that year. So I was delighted I got to photograph them. And Hot Press also got me to do the editorial with Callum Best. And I did their front cover with the original Rude Boys back, uh, that's about 10 years ago now. So, and from there, because of the Morbid Angel thing, I started working with Terrorizer magazine, doing covers for um, their CDs. And that was a big one because um, myself and my mate, Derek, who's heavily involved, Derek Osgrove, who's heavily involved with uh, Dublin Comic Con. Um, we used to sit around his house, you know, reading uh, Terrorizer when we were 16. And we're, there was like an art special with Dan Seagrave and these artists who do album cover art. And then to think like that, you know, a decade later, I'm doing the Morbid Angel cover and the the, the stuff for um, um, Terrorizer. Now, Terrorizer's defunct in the last couple of years, unfortunately, but it was great because I met other people like um, Steve Newman, who's a, an amazing illustrator slash graphic designer, and he got me in doing some stuff with him for um, Iron Fist magazine, just with layout. And... And funny enough, then, um, because of my skills in um, in Photoshop and photography, uh, I was working for Brown Thomas in the merchandising design team. And my HR manager moved on to Kildare Village. And after redundancy and after my master's, um, she called back, came back to me and goes, do you want to come to Kildare Village? We need a graphic designer. And my wife, was my girlfriend at the time, is a guru in InDesign. So she crash course me in InDesign over a weekend. And uh, that was my upskilling. So I was doing InDesign and Illustrator and stuff for Killer Village. And although it wasn't a perfect job, and I'm not really a big fan of corporate design, um, it was a brilliant learning curve um, for the professionalism, especially if you want to be a freelancer. You know, and um, that kind of gets us up to date now because now I work for, uh, as I said, I work for the Limerick um, School of Art and Design on Clonmel Digital Campus teaching game art design. So I'm kind of the guy who teaches academically how to make goblins, robots, um, superhero characters in Photoshop and 3D modeling. So the, the best thing about learning all these things is transferable skills in the entertainment world and entertainment art are so important. Um, and the fact that, and Kim, Kim can, can attest to this because when we were discussing our processes in photography and like, you know, Kim got to do all the cool stuff that we grew up with, um, show me all the stuff he did for Kenner, how they did it pre Photoshop and building some miniature sets 
and I took a lot of influence from the the bigotures as they call them from Lord of the Rings that what a workshop we're doing and I love the problem solving that comes into entertainment design uh, ILM would be like I guess the biggest influence of my life because they pretty much are responsible for everything we have in a way you know yeah. um, sorry I, I realized I didn't take a breath there that was an entire essay <laughs> so <laughs> no perfect so I'm really fascinated by you know the whole multimedia aspects of everything so say say you're working on a, a digital art project what is like the actual process do you just jump in there um, digitally or do you start with pen and paper I actually never start with pen and paper. Um, funny enough, like growing up loving drawing, when I got to art college, I discovered I was more into sculpture, 3D, tactile 3D with my hands oh, wow. and, and mark making. Um, so when I, I did a, my degree. I, I actually stayed on quite a while in college. I did my first diploma um, degree in sculpture, and then I transferred over and did a degree in printmaking. And then I did the master's in human interactive, human, um, it's called HCI now, it's human uh, computer interaction. We used to just call it um, interactive media. And that's where all the Photoshop and photography skills come in. But you learn photography through those courses as well. And um, I love making my own mark making. And um, like, for instance, the process I have here, the way I do my artwork, um, the He-Man stuff, the sci-fi stuff that is very much based, the way I work, the influences come from things like Frank Franzetta, Drew Struzan, Mark Taylor, all the stuff that we grew up with in, in the 80s and always will kind of just, is ingrained in your subconscious. But what I do down in Clonmel is in the studio space during the downtime, I started doing really big Bob Ross style paintings of clouds, <laughs> like, mad, like matte paintings. And we still use those paintings as backdrops for doing production shots. Oh. So we use action figures and LED lights. So I teach my students how to do photography and filming of miniatures using my backdrops and my painted castles. And I started learning how to use expanding foam and the different densities of expanding foam to make castles and rock faces. Um, but I always like to build something that I can then photograph to create my images. But then cool. when I started learning ZBrush, that was just another link in the chain between sculpture and 3D and, and in physical sculpture because it's 3D clay modeling. And in the last four years, um, when I discovered 3D scanning, that went to a whole other level. So for you probably can't see it. I know you guys can see me and most people will only hear me, but there's actually a 3D scanner bed behind me here. It's a small turntable. Oh. Um, so what I actually do is um, I take apart the action figures. I 3D scan all the armor, the heads, any piece of the figure that is quite a trademark visual style. And I rebuild them as rigged characters in the computer using the toys. And from there, I'm able to pose them, render the light any way I want. But I know how to use light and shadow and composition in 3D because I'm a photographer. Yeah. This so is the they main all conversation. Kind of work together. Oh, big time. Like, yeah. I know how to paint life because I know atmospheric perspective and, and to very clearly what to, to sum up what atmospheric perspective is, you know, when you look at mountains in the distance and they're blue. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's because we're looking through the, the, the condensed layers of hydrogen and that's why they get bluer and faded away. Right. So that's what atmospheric perspective is. So wow. knowing how to do that from watching Bob Ross and discovery in the mornings, <laughs> how to do it with a camera, happy little trees. 
Yeah, happy little trees. And I remember watching an episode <laughs> of Art Attack on ITV where your man Andy went, I'm going to show you how to do um, mountains in the distance. And he, and this is how I teach layers in Photoshop, was he cut out all these mountains made out of um, just triangles out of craft black paper, put it down, put a piece of tracing paper over it. Then he cut out more mountains in a different shape, put it down, another sheet of tracing paper, and repeated this process until he had this image where all these mountains kept fading back into the distance. Cool. And that's that's atmospheric perspective made completely out of craft paper and tracing paper, right? Wow. So if you take that very simple concept and then lighting uh, in 3D because you know how to use an LED light and move it. like So I get my, my students to look at an action figure through their phone and then I start moving LED lights around and they can see the, how, how dynamically the light changes on the figure through a screen. And then I tell them, when you have to move all these big, huge gray blocks in Maya or whatever 3D rendering program, and you don't see the effect until you press render, that's what it's mm -hmm. actually doing. And then they get it because they can physically pick up a light and an object and experiment with it. So the photography is great for helping to understand the kind of almost the more maths-based programs like Maya and Blender and, mm -hmm. you know, those kind of things. Because I love software that's more artistically friendly and doesn't involve me having to know a lot of science or maths, if that makes sense. Yeah. So the transferable skills for me are very, very important, you know. Cool. Um, I once did a project where I was, and it was a joke, one of my friends had for me, he goes, I was telling him how I made zombies. I went down to Tesco um, years ago and I bought a cooked chicken and I brought it home and I took the chicken apart, flattened it all out, photographed all the skin, the muscles, and then I soaked the whole thing in red ink so that the red ink was coming out of all the meat and then I re-photographed it and I made an entire file for making zombies and zombie flesh and uh, just out of bits of chicken and meat. And um, then somebody said, oh, well, what if you need to do a vegan zombie? And I said, you use a cauliflower. And I was just joking, but I was like, geez, that's actually a good idea. You just put red ink on a cauliflower and you got a brain, you know? So mm -hmm. if, I, if I had to do aerial views, like I remember watching Avatar and I was like, oh my God, I love these big scenes with all the trees, um, I actually use broccoli. So when I want to do my He-Man castles or anything where it looks like this gigantic castle over all of these tiny detailed trees, there's a vast forest in front of it. I just took loads of photographs of broccoli and use that for my foreground. Sorry, I had a doggy distraction there. <laughs> ah, that's okay. Oh, John Luke. It's okay. Can you mention... Oh no, go ahead, Kate. If you have a question, go for it. Oh, I just wanted to, to go back. Here, let me get the dog down. Sorry, I, I talked about chicken and broccoli, and then the dog is like jumping in for dinner. <laughs> so, come here. Stop barking. Come here. Sit. Sit. Okay. So, I wanted to go back to the 3D printing for a second. Um, ha have you ever found any uses for 3D printing that were unconventional? And that sort of thing well just to make the distinction i actually use 3d scanning which is actually taking an object and oh. digitizing it into the computer but for instance um do you guys know jay McEwen from um team emerald cosplay you probably come team Emerald, uh, yeah, yeah. I'd be familiar with, yeah well jay came over and he um he measured my son's head to make the mandalorian helmet for him last year Oh, wow. So I mean, he, he's got a Mando helmet size just for a five-year-old. 
But while he was here, I did a 3D scan of his head. So he has a one-to-one scale model of himself. So when he's doing his uh, 3D printing, mm-hmm. he can actually measure stuff on his own head before he prints it. Oh, wow. So the 3D scanning come out. That same process that I do for action figures is exactly what we did for that. And I ended up using that workflow to show some of my friends who are archaeologists how they could um, digitize objects. So they brought one of the guys brought up a piece of bone that was carved into a spearhead. And it was 6,000 years old. And we 3D scanned it so we could actually make the there's a, spe- a specific illustration process mm-hmm. for called stipple effect for archaeology. And I was showing him how you could go between 3D scanning, Procreate, and Photoshop to make custom brushes that if you have the 3D model, you can render it in line and use the mm-hmm. stipple brushes mm-hmm. over it. And it's so, instead of something for archaeology taking eight hours, once you have your library built of 3D models, you could possibly mm-hmm. do it in one or two hours. Wow. So it's kind of like in Jurassic Park when, doesn't he like scan the raptor voice yeah. box thing or yep. something like that? When they and scan. And then it prints it. Yep. And you yeah. know the the very no, you see the reason I can do it now is it took that long for it to become a consumer product. Wow. But if you look at the appendices for the first Lord of the Rings, when they made the cave trial, they actually built a T pose one to one scale cave trial Whoa. and 3D scanned that to animate the cave trial for Crazy. the movie. Yeah. And some of the toy companies like the four horsemen who are hand or who are actual clay based sculptors. Instead of just going hardcore into learning programs like ZBrush, um, they had the intermediary, pro- the intermediary. I can't say the word. The in-between process of um, <laughs> of using three D scanners, you know, mm-hmm. and then you learn how to clean up the models and and how to make them more sleek or, or you know remove any noise um, and it, it, like it's. The process that I had for creating illustration using 3D models is because I learned how to reverse engineer STL files. So all, mm-hmm. there's a whole world of files out there now that people are for 3D printing in Creative mm-hmm. Commons. And um, I know, Gary, you've seen the illustrations I did of the Mandalorian for the metal video. Kate, um, Kate loved that one as well, yeah, by the way. It was awesome. amazing. Yeah, what I've actually done in the meantime, and I don't have it in front of me, if you look at the Boba Fett one we did, I just I actually went off and bought three uh, D model kits for printing of uh, Boba Fett, and then I was able to rig them to make all the the positions with the guitar. But the guitar was actually a flying V, and I took apart the the, um, the slave one. What's it called now? The fire spray. I took apart the fire spray model kit and turned that into the guitar. So my flying V Boba Fett guitar is actually the slave one wow. as a guitar in in the video, and I have a three D printed. Oh, I, I, I don't want Gary. I'm gonna to have to bring it to Comic Con to show it to you. Um, Do definitely. I brought. I made my own Boba Fett in the scale of my seven-inch He-Man figures, as a He-Man Whoa. character of what? Boba Fett, but he, he has the guitar instead of a weapon. Nice. So um, nice. Because one of the guy, I, I work with a guy in Germany where we share files, and instead of me um, printing my own stuff at home, he prints because he's printing all the time. He prints whatever I need, and I share all my 3D files he needs for custom builds. So there's a lovely little community even amongst the He-Man fans where we build and share and, you know, somebody might want to do something, but, you know, a custom toy or a vintage toy costs a couple of thousand dollars maybe, you know. Mm-hmm. So one of the first things I did is I actually went down to Odyssey Studios here in Limerick two years ago during lockdown 
I had to sign an NDA, would you believe, for for Disney because the lads were building all the stuff for Disenchanted at the time. Mm. I, I think we can say it now since the movie came out. Um, <laughs> but while I was in there, uh, they let me use their scanner. And I brought down um, two or three of my vintage He-Man castles. Now, one of those castles, if you got it in its box with all the stickers, mint condition, can be up to $14,000. And I sacrificed mine. I took it apart and um, brought it down. I made a full one-to-one scale 3D model kit of it um, just for myself, for my illustrations, because I love the fact that I can have a virtual castle in a computer. I can rotate it. I can change the cameras, change the lights, change yeah. the perspective mm-hmm. and look at it like I'm looking up at a real castle. You know, it's, it's so That's much cool. fun. It's like, it's basically like, you know, if I'm holding up, a, you guys can see a broken toy in front of me and I'm going to go, I'm going to put this armor off this guy onto this part. My illustrations are basically that same customizing kit bash technique that customizers and cosplayers do, but I'm just doing it digitally and turning it into a 2D representation when it's finished that resembles the 80s style artwork because that's what we grew up with. And I love those kind of airbrush colors and you know oil painted kind of glows you get from Frank Franzetta, you know. But that's that's how the, the 3D process came into it for me. It was just like do the same thing as you do with Warhammer Paint, but do the whole thing digitally. Cool. And you you've touched on the 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 He Man stuff, which we'll come to it. But just what I was wondering was a lot of what you do is, as you said, you love He Man, and we would say more sort of the the more retro old school side of things. Mm. And yet you work in an industry where emerging technologies is, is a huge thing. Yeah. And you previously mentioned your upskilling. So what I was wondering was, how do you find the balance in what you use? Have you sort of got your tried and trusted methods that you always stick to and use, or are you always on the lookout for maybe the next software package or piece of kick get back in? Well, I, I don't want to get into it too much, but I've spent the last, since last summer, uh, deep in research in the controversy of AI, simply because the pro forum groups where I'm in, where I talk to other artists all the time who are in the industry, who like it or dislike it for different reasons. Um, it can worry a lot of people, but what worries them is like that could actually kind of the way it's being used right now. And you may have seen that there's a class action suit from Getty against there's a class action and a separate lawsuit, as far as I know, with, from Getty against Midjourney and Stable, Stable Diffusion. And um, if you guys know what AI is, which is the prompt based AI where you can type whatever you want and it creates artwork that pretty much looks like 80s artwork, 80s style artwork. And there's people making the Jim Henson version of Alien or John Carpenter's Alien. I've seen all these types of images, okay? But um, I think the procedural methods in those techniques are brilliant. The problem is it's it's taking other people's existing artwork without consent to generate the images, okay? So I looked at all that for the last couple of months and there's already, people might be giving out about it and going crazy and I'm I'm one of the people defending real art in this um, amongst my groups and my friends, but there's a thing in Photoshop, for instance, called neural filters, or you can render random trees. So that, that takes out the, the lovely fluffy little trees that you spend five to 10 years learning to do because you watch Bob Ross videos. Um, um, but I, I, I think emerging technologies will only ever be as good as the contributing human factor, which is how an artist is going to use this with their hands to make something that no one else has seen. Does that make sense? Yeah. Because like I, I, I've ended up doing stuff for Einscan 
uh, the company that make the scanners I use. And I didn't think anything of it, but they basically came along to me because their, their technology is used for reverse engineering in automobiles and airplanes. It's used in dentistry science for, it's been used by amputees to scan an arm to be able to really fit a 3D printed um, prosthetic. Nobody was doing it with action figures to make 2D art. And they loved that. So they got me to, I, I, they gave me, um, Einstein came out with a new consumer model um, scanner back last September um, called the Einstein, which is their first handheld that's under 1,000 euros. And um, they sent me one to do a whole project of my style of artwork. So I ended up having to do this huge battle scene. And uh, I went into Smith's Toys and I picked up the new um, Buzz Lightyear dropship. And that's the great thing. I was like, I have to make this scanning project and I need materials. I'm going straight out to Smith's Toys and I'm going to buy all these action figures and chunky looking ships. And I made a huge battle scene where um, Ram Man from He-Man is charging into a bunch of uh, the Mark Farlane um, Warhammer um, Space Marines and Buzz Lightyear's dropship is blowing the crap out of the background, you know, but it looks like a full on 80 style concept art, Ralph McQuarrie, but vivid colors kind of battle scene, you know, it looks like the end credits of the Mandalorian. And I don't know how many people know that, but the, the Mandalorian or Boba Fett end credits, if you've seen them are, are strongly influenced by the original concept art of Ralph McQuarrie, because for, in my industry, he is a god because there is there was no concept art industry and visualization in movies before he came along. You know, it just wasn't mm -hmm. done until George Lucas hired him. So, um, yeah, I ended up creating artwork, you know, 40 years later using a 3D scanner and some Buzz Lightyear toys that resemble something that was influenced by Ralph Macquarie. So the emerging technologies are no good for me, well, in my in my opinion anyway, without the the original human factors like i'm going to take this piece of tech and i'm going to do something interesting maybe you know I, I i saw a video from my students recently about what is creativity and one of the main points is nothing is original um everything that has ever been done or like there's no reinventing the wheel kind of but it's how you take the wheel and this other thing that put them together to create something new you know, and when you do that, you come up with something that maybe some woman, someone hasn't seen or just end on that point. Like one of my favorite designers, Chris Stowe, once said that um, everything in the, that had ever needed to be said in the world has been said. Just not everybody was listening. And that I remember watching a designer um, on Abstract, which is a great show on Netflix. Uh, Philip Neiman, I think is his name. He's uh, an illustrator for the New York, New Yorker. He's talking about pop. Uh, music and he said that most pop music is all the same message it's just it will always update with the style and the feel and the beat it's always usually boy meets girl or boy loses girl or girl loses boy does regret and love but we've heard all of these themes a million times over but the, the songs always change the beat always changes you know so it has to be applicable to a new generation that's that's a, a great answer and from that then, actually, if we could, you talk about George Lucas, for, for what you guys do, and particularly what, you know, Kim will obviously speak, attest to this more as well. But when you are photographing, let's say, these figures, what is your process like in that sense versus 
photographing a, a fully living, breathing human. Is the process different or from the perspective of photographing the figures? Is completely everything under control in that how you compose them, that there's no facial expressions to be worrying about that? The I suppose your imagination is limitless in terms of what what you can do and what you can produce. Um, well, the one lesson I've learned over the years from doing any type of product photography, and um, it's a good friend of mine, Paul Harpy, who's a lecturer in the college, he, who really got me thinking about this. I am name dropping like crazy, but I'm just trying to thank everyone as I go who has ever been an influence. Um, he gets everything he possibly can, 99% in camera, and doesn't go, oh, sure, I'll Photoshop it later, you know? So yeah. the hardest thing about doing anything with action figures, you could pick up a toy and have it in your hand, and you, you're, you, what you don't realize, you're imagining the life of this character. But when you put your a lens between yourself and the toy, or the figure, mm -hmm. all of a sudden you see all the, especially if you use a macro lens, because the big difference between working with a person and a figure that's only seven inches tall is the relationship between you, the environment, and this very small environment. So you need miniature castles, big, but your lights all of a sudden are bigger. So, you know, in terms of if you stand in front of an LED light yourself, you're six foot tall and the LED light is three foot across. But now the mm -hmm. figure is seven inches tall and the led light is now the size of a flipping stadium you know what i mean so mm -hmm. there's, there's the factors of the light the how far you need to be away from the figure the depth of field which is how much of the background is going to be blurred out how much do i need to see but the biggest problem when, when you're working on action figures is giving them a pose that when you're looking through the camera really feels like it's coming to life because most people will put a toy or a statue no statues are different because they come posed if you've ever seen anything made by sideshow or is it premium effects the japanese guys who do those massive statues you know they all have the a di diamond select ones yeah they have dynamic poses whereas an action figure comes in an a pose in a box and it's up to you to pose it on your shelf or when you're playing with it so you have control over the pose but you're not in the middle of the woods and you're trying to get this guy to stand up and then you're trying to create a battle scene and you have that lovely unfortunate domino effect that I've seen with loads of people with their clone trooper battle their clone trooper army bills where they try and stand up they put up the last clone trooper and it knocks over the entire shelf because it's not standing upright try doing that out in the woods and you have the scene set up and you're about to take the shot and one figure falls over and knocks the whole display and you have to go back and set it all up again and fix the lights and you know you might be trying to time those tiny little um little uh, disposable kind of fog. I don't know what they're actually called, but do you know when you have the, they're like a little firework, you pull it out, the smoke goes off and you throw it into the middle of your, or sparks and fireworks into the middle of your shots. Um, you're setting up all the figures and the next thing you fall over. And it's, 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 it comes back to, um, well, to, to put it very simply, do you know when they made Lord of the Rings, one of the things that Peter Jackson said about designing the characters was the bit where they're walking over the mountain the silhouette had to be very, very strong. And um, that mm -hmm. when you're looking at them on the mountain in that scene in Lord of the Rings, you were able to pick out every single one of the nine characters. You knew which one was Gandalf, you knew which one was Aragorn. All the hobbits had certain little details that you knew which one was which. And they did the same thing that they made all the dwarves and the hobbit look very individual. So you got like Darth Vader is a very striking silhouette. You know who it is, right? So when you're working with action figures, the first thing I do is kind of blur my eyes and I look for the silhouette, the dynamic silhouette, like as if you were doing a comic book drawing, trying to get the pose right, the, the dynamic angle. 
so again, there we come back to inter-transferable transferable skills. What I've learned from drawing that I can now put into a photo. Um, sorry, I'm ranting on now, but I hope that makes sense. Um, that's kind of the, yeah. that's the first thing I look for. And then dynamic lighting. Um, to kind of, in my head, it's like, I have this lovely outdoor scene. Um, I might have some small handheld LEDs and an action figure, but I'm just trying to get the light right so that when I blow this up on the wall, it looks like it's a movie poster or off the back of the box. Because one of the best things about it being a kid in the 80s is when you went, when you got a toy off someone for your birthday or you went to the shop, you didn't just look at the toy. First thing, the next thing you did is you looked at the back of the box. You want to, especially if you we went and got a spaceship like um, the Return of the Jedi, the, the sail barge. What was the first thing you did after looking at it? Because it's in a box. You can't see it in the bubble. The next thing you do is you look at the back of the box and see all the other stuff that's available, you know? Um, and that, that, that's bringing us on to that hopefully uh, Kim will be joining us at uh, at some point. Mm. So, but but as you've mentioned, the the packaging and sort of the 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 old retro figures, which that artistic style and that sort of design seems to be making a, a comeback. Mm. So that that was obviously huge for Star Wars. But what was it in that sense about He Man, uh, Ken, that that drew you to that? Well, if you look at the He Man packaging, like the Star Wars stuff went full circle back to the retro packaging didn't it yeah you know even to the point where like super seven are doing the reaction figures and they're using the old kenner style logo you walked into i remember seeing the very first he-man ad i ever saw on tv which was jitsu fighting he-man and stridor which was the big robotic horse and skeletor it was the very very first moment in my life where um and we're all guilty as this as as nerd collectors it was the first time in my life I ever saw something where I didn't go, oh, that's really cool. I went, I need this. I'd be screaming at my mother going, I have have to have this. There's no no's, there's no when's. This will be in my life, you know, because I saw that ad. I was four or five and I still remember just being absolutely blown away. I still tell people, like, there's a done stores down the road here from where I live in Limerick City that's now turned into the Fab Lab. I remember the exact moment and exact spot in that store where I saw them on the shelf for the very first time uh, when I was five. Or, I was just turning five because I got my first toy when I was five from He-Man. But um, the packaging on He-Man toys, I'd never seen anything like that in my life. I'm actually looking at a whole bloody display of the new Origins and some of the vintage remakes here on the wall behind um, where I'm talking to you. And um, I always keep them on my desk because that packaging with the exploding red rocks and the, the 3D, that 80 style 3D text is just for me, it's just still looking at it now, it's still incredible, you know. Um, and all the back of those boxes, no one really did product photography. Like Kim was doing the product photography for the, the Star Wars space, but and, and the Star Wars boxes had the photos more, but the He-Man ones had illustrations on the back of them. Hello, Kim. We we say his name and he, <laughs> oh, he appears. Did I say his name three times? Did I? <laughs> you did. Yes. <laughs> How are you? All right. Sorry about no, being so No, you're good. Late. It's okay. Nobody can. Uh, nobody can. Uh, can predict um, bad weather. But um, Kim, we'll come to you in a second. So um, just um, from that perspective, um, Ken, you mentioned that the the dream sort of of every artist was to become a fan artist to you know an officially licensed artist working within the actual 
pop culture or the the series that that you grew up loving mm. how how did your journey actually start there and how did it actually come about that you got to do official work for uh masters of the universe just i've been doing all like i have a page called ken's motu projects where i was just having fun with my customs my toys i was using the photography to figure out how to build composites then the 3d came in and at just one point I just started going back to making stuff with He-Man toys and, and making artwork with the figures and the 3D combined. And I had given it a go over the years. Like I did my first Castle Grayskull kind of comp that was like a matte painting that was very much based on Lord of the Rings in 2010. And then I didn't do one for another couple of years. And what happened was I did artwork that I wanted to try and get a job with. Um, I sent off an application to Games Workshop for um, Warhammer 40k. And that didn't come true. So then I um, just kept at it, doing my own stuff, because I do a lot of surreal. My own work is very much kind of surreal. Well, it was described as post-humanist, and um, I don't call it that because I never did. Um, I like to just do kind of surreal kind of stuff that is almost based on taking negative human emotions and turning them into something positive. That was my way of kind of processing things. And it just got to a stage where I got things like um, get more and more into pop culture stuff, toys showing back up on the market. Um, I gave He-Man a go every couple of years. And I won just a couple of years ago, again, I got to a stage where I'm like, oh, all those skills and bits and pieces I've been trying out here and there over the last career have finally come together. And I started, I, I got an interview in 2018 from Mundo Masters, which is the Spanish magazine about my Photoshop work and my, my, my miniature builds and all the stuff I was doing because it was such a variety of different techniques. I was, and everything I wanted to test and try out, I would do a He-Man piece to try out my, my combinations of tech and fine art. So I would do my surreal stuff, but then I go, I wonder, can I do pop culture? And I go straight into He-Man. So instead of going, oh, I've got to figure out a way to paint this castle, or a castle scene, what's the first thing I do? I'm going to try out another Castle Grayskull. And then maybe I'll do some random castle after that. Mm-hmm. So I was doing all of this. And what happened in 2017, one of the guys brought a bunch of my prints over to PowerCon when it was still in Anaheim. And they showed them to Mark Taylor. And um, they sent me a photo of Mark Taylor holding up my picture of Man at Arms, which I actually made out of a retired uh, cop here in Limerick who kind of looked like Man at Arms. He had the big mustache, so... This guy, John, I asked him what he posed and I turned him into Man-at-Arms with different macro photos of the figures and digital paint over. And in a very kind of, I wanted it to look like a proper royal military portrait that you'd see in War and Peace, that kind of stuff. And um, then I left a copy of it into the bar down here and he sent it to me in the market here. Limerick, he goes, Jesus, he's like, and I was like, what? And he goes, I know exactly who you turned me into because I remember running around Dublin back in the 80s at Santa Claus trying to get the bloody things when they're all sold out in Limerick. So it brought back a memory of him trying to get those exact toys for his, his kids. Like, so that happened. I think then the guys in Mundo Masters must have seen the, the images of Mark with my work because they asked me to do an interview for him. And as a thank you for the interview, I said, I'd love to do one of your covers for Mundo Masters. And I did. And I spent maybe a good eight weeks working on this composition of Skeletor and Hordak for the front cover. And a real, really challenged myself again on the, the Franzetta kind of oil paint style using bits of photography, bits of 3D. And then um, 
that eight weeks, like for instance, the first time I ever did a dragon, it took me six months. But now if I did the same dragon, I'd have it done in five hours. So everything is always a learning process. And uh, now I'm just looking at it there when I was doing these, uh, my fan-based Magic the Gathering cards. Um, I have enough work to make 60 cards. So I've over 60 illustrations done in the last three years of He-Man stuff for for the guys in Germany use it for their tickets for the conventions. They're using it for the magazine covers. So then they asked me, they said, look, Mattel is, we're doing an audio play of He-Man because that was a massive thing. Remember we had the storybooks as kids with the tapes? Well, Germany in some respects has its own license. Like that's just happened in Battletech as well. So I got Battletech back in 2017, but I still continue on my He-Man stuff, which would have been the bucket list. And then, um, the lads in Germany, when I went over for the first time, were like, oh, yeah, the audio plays are big culture over here. And I was like, oh, do you mean the storybooks with the tapes? Like, no, no, no. Everybody in the world got the storybooks with the tapes. But Germany had its own license to make its own stories within the canon. The Mattel gave them the license to do their own thing. So they went off and just did a new one based on the CGI kids Netflix one. So I ended up doing the cover for that. And that actually came with the first new issue of He-Man issue one, the kids magazine. Like we'll walk into a shop here in Ireland and we'll find all the activity magazines for kids, like the Ryan's World and Lego and stuff. They have a He-Man one now in Germany and my artwork was on the CD that came with issue one. So when I saw that, I was like, oh my God, you know, I'd love to show this, but it's all in German. So my kid can't listen to it. <laughs> but then we did the second one, which hasn't been released. Um, can, I can't show you that one. So that's for the revelation, which was the Kevin Smith show. And I was informed that there's more stuff on the horizon I can't talk about. And that's kind of where I am up to date with you. Like I'm doing artwork currently now for the, the upcoming cons for backdrops. And um, one of the guys literally yesterday got onto me for one of the new paintings. He wants to use it for a ticket for a He-Man convention. There's an event in the end of this month in Germany. So they're going to use the artwork for the tickets um so yeah just that's it really yeah and as we said we are now joined by the man who shot luke skywalker kim simmons and we should mention that this interview was only possible because a certain ken colvin went to a convention stateside and who just so happened to be there would is it fair to say ken it was perhaps a a meeting of kindred spirits as such (laughs) <laughs> oh yeah, most definitely. Hey Kim, how are you keeping? <laughs> <laughs> All right, <laughs> but I mean, we're talking here about two of sort of the 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 biggest franchises that have ever have ever been. And Kim, your work obviously with Mattel and Kenner spanned, and I mean, such a long, long time, and essentially every form of packaging for the older sort of Star Wars retro figures, which, as Ken mentioned. <laughs> have come back around in that the style of packaging on the on the figures has now returned to uh, that style so for you what's it like to see that sort of old school style which which you effectively set the trend for coming back well let's let's don't forget there was the man in front of me was Roy Frankenfield who, who started yeah. okay and I, then I continued on but the <laughs> but um, Roy liked shadows, a lot of deep shadows, <laughs> and I didn't. So, <laughs> so, but no, it, it, it's I 
from what I've seen, and I I don't go to toy stores mm-hmm. very often. I just really don't. I have to go to when I go to the cons or you know different conventions. That's where I see things. And when I see it, I go, oh, okay, they're trying to do what we did back then. And I can and I can see what they've done. And it's kind of like, well, well it's not quite the same. <laughs> they're trying. They're trying. <laughs> it's more, it, it's, it's, uh, I don't know. It's it, it possibly it's the film and the way you light it. You know, that's the way I'm looking at it. I mean, I do things now and I can, it's about the same way I would do film. Uh, the only difference is, is now I can get, I can see the progressions. It's really kind of cool as I go through it. So. Cool. Well, from that then, if you could take a, okay, sorry, do you want to chime in there with a question? Oh, um, I was just curious, like what kind of cameras you used back on those original figures oh back in the day yeah back in the day that was a it was a whatever camera i'd get my hands on <laughs> but it was an eight by ten deer door uh an eight by ten cambo four by five cambos um possiblods nikons i mean literally we i ran the gauntlet whatever 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 i needed but most of the most of the stuff that went on the packaging was eight by ten deer door or eight by ten century is an old just a copy of a deer door um you'd use the hand or hand shots you'd use the Hasselblad rarely you do a four by five um because it just depends on what hmm. what was handy <laughs> what was it what was in the shop if the Hasselblad wasn't if the Hasselblad was in the shop I shot a four by wow. five it made no difference to me that's cool <laughs> I could pick up <laughs> any of them so it didn't make any difference Kim, if you could take us um back, what was it like sorry is that John Luke or have we got Kim's dog barking as well we have two dogs that on was John Luke. <laughs> that was Jean-Luke <laughs> <laughs> so Ken if you could take us back um what was the sort of pathway like in terms of your career and how you got started in photography to eventually making your way up to working with the likes of um Kenner what was that journey sort of like was it a I can imagine it was a lot of sort of hard graft and a, a bit of luck along the way a lot, a lot of luck. <laughs> what are you talking about? <laughs> I, I've had a camera in my hand since basically the third grade in grade school. So, but off and on, and I just pick it up, I use it, and I so I could pick up anything. Uh, and then I graduated my dad's camera, so went from there. But um, when I got out of grad school, I was still had my thesis to do. Literally, I started. I hit the streets. I was going from design studio, design studio, whatever. It never occurred to me to go to Kenner. Uh, just I didn't think that way. And then just luckily, I went into this one studio. It's now called LPK here in Cincinnati. And uh, they, the art director that I ran in that interviewed me said, you need to go see Frankie. He needs help. And pretty much that's, I got over there. He saw my book. I looked at the studio and said, okay. He says, well, I, I, I said, look, literally, I will, I've got a, I, I need a job. 75 bucks a week. I don't care. I need a job. He went to $100 a week, but that took, that took about 24 hours. <laughs> <laughs> and I showed up and never looked back. And like you, you say you never looked back, but at that time, did you have any idea that what was effectively you needing a job effectively became the job? I mean, you, you did it for such a long time that it had to have been a role that just must have been so exciting and something that you thoroughly enjoyed because you did it for so long. 
Well, I enjoyed it. There's no, I mean, to me, it was, it was, yeah, I okay. It was, I graduated from working for somebody to working for myself, but it was always, I enjoyed shooting the, the Star Wars. I mean, there, I was asked, how could you, I one a friend of mine and said, Kim, how can you shoot the same thing all the time? I said, what's the problem? They're all different. I mean, basically, that's the way I looked at it. Everybody's different, and I enjoyed doing it. And it didn't take me very long because the guy that I shared space with, space with at the time, he would he loved following me because he said I didn't have he didn't have to do anything. He just put his product in there from Procter and Gamble and change one light and be done. Wow. I had it lit. <laughs> I had it lit. I mean, I. But I, I changed everything around. I mean, I, I just did. I just, the way I looked at it and I said, okay, I've got to do this or I've got to do that. I'd have it lit by the time I'd get back to the studio after being, getting the brief, I'd have it all lit in my head, what I was going to do, how I was going to do it. So all I had to do is put it in there. I had to, once I got it there, I was like, oh, okay, no, then what do I do? No, I had it done in my head by the time I walked, walked into the studio. So that's just what I did. Uh, I know Ken that. and Ken. Um, so I kind of want to go back to this story of how you guys met. Um, <laughs> it just it seems like such a such a fascinating pairing between you two. Um, so can you kind of describe a little more about how that went down? I had this Irish guy come up to my booth. <laughs> and it takes a while to get that Irish accent to, to translate it into something I can hear. But it was all right after by the end by the totally middle of the understand. day, in the middle of the time. It, it, yes. <laughs> so no, it, it was it was great. I mean, that's really what happened. Then it was back and forth. He'd come to me, and I'd go to his booth. It was, it was interesting because I loved his work. I love his work. It's great. <laughs> I think the most fun moment for me was Kim came over at one point, and I had my Boba Fett prints hidden under the table. Because they got mixed up with my He-Man stuff. And he goes, oh, what's that? And I pulled him out and I was showing it to him. And I was explaining, like I explained to you guys, how I do it with 3D and photography. And Kim at that point had told me so much about his process and the problem solving with the analog um, cameras, pre-digital and doing all. Because he showed me his Return of the Jedi shots and the before and after, which was the original shots he was doing in 83 versus the ones he was doing with the power to force and stuff now. And... And I turned around and went, what do you think of my, my Tatooine sunset? He goes, yeah, it's cool. And he goes, it's an, and in big take limit accent, I was like, it's an orange. Because <laughs> I'd literally taken a photograph of an orange in my hand <laughs> with my cannon, cut it out in a circle and threw it in the background and filtered it in Photoshop to be my setting sun. Nice. So yeah, there's a couple of oranges floating around behind Boba Fett and my stuff. <laughs> but do you know what? That comes straight back to Star Wars. That's like... <laughs> How many potatoes were used as meteorites in the Empire Strikes Back? Like, you know, that's probably where I got the idea. Perfect. <laughs> Love that. Oh, Lordy, that's great. That's great. It's like I'm working on this diorama for the book and uh, for this for the um for the poster, and I'm the guy that he's a 3D. Well, he's a 3D printer. He's doing a lot of little stuff for me because I'm having to foreshorten the space, and. He, he goes, Kim, he says, you can't have this. I just mocked it up in the shot as I'm going along. And he goes, you can't. And I sent him a picture of it. He goes, you can't have the suns over there. I said, why not? 
where all the lights going towards the fig towards the village here and i said i know that the suns aren't going to be there in the end i'd have to give myself the idea yeah <laughs> this is tatooine <laughs> and i'm putting them in there myself i'm they're uh, not the two sun set. rule every time we're doing concept art in my classes i'm telling them the two sun rule you have to put in two suns of two planets so people know it's not earth and that comes straight from tatooine stuff like <laughs> nice but the problem is when you have to light it in yeah. this direction and the sun's coming this way, <laughs> I'll work it out. <laughs> and guys, with that, oh no, go ahead, Kate. So I have another question. Um, I was just wondering in your respective industries, is there like a well-known secret that would surprise just like average people? It's really, really hard. Yeah. It, it, it really isn't easy. Yeah. There definitely is an Instagram. <laughs> and, you know, the cameras, the cameras and the phones are great, mm. but they're not the cam, the camera that you really use. The, they're, they're really not there. There's something about the lenses. It's digital's great. Don't, don't, have, I love digital. I've been in digital since the very early 90s. I mean, really early 90s. But, and you, the idea is you want to make it look as much like film, believe it or not, as much like film that you can, because it's that look. And that's, to me, that's what's missing on the Star Wars packaging that I've seen today. It's because it, 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 it's sometimes it's not, it doesn't feel Isn't right. That's why JJ, JJ went back Red. to use the original lenses for episode seven, because he didn't want that digital Good prequel thing. feel, you know, with mm -hmm. the movies. Like the grainy kind of overlay. There's something, what, you, there's something the, about the film. That's the, it's the glass. It's the glass. It's that glass. If you, you know, they, the, the lenses are so sharp. The chips are so sharp. Everything's so sharp. You can see inside the pores of somebody's face. Just about. It's that. It's, and do you really, do you really want that? Do you really need that? You want to get, you want to have that look. And not, I don't know. It's it. You have to feel it, <laughs> guys. One thing that's that's uh, something that I've been thinking of is a meeting of the the minds. You know, as as you said, it maybe was a meeting of um kindred spirits. As you guys were were talking shop effectively, was there anything that surprised either of you about the others? Maybe methods or techniques or how they approach their work? Because I can imagine in what you do individuality is 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 a huge thing i was just taking in everything he was saying ken was saying because you know that's basically what i had to because you know he's 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 he, he is a new newer generation i gotta figure this out right because he, he's doing such technology mm -hmm. above and beyond it is it it blew me away Let's what kid meant to say is i didn't shut up i didn't stop talking <laughs> over at breakfast so i just kept nam 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 but um yeah yes but i enjoyed every bit <laughs> but what i really enjoyed is and the reason i talk too much is i almost need to um convince myself that it's not stupid or that i'm not crazy because i do this stuff every day and still i feel like i'm having um imposter syndrome sometimes but when kim was telling me his stories about the design story that we had uh, where we were talking about designers versus photographers over breakfast. Um, mm -hmm. the, for me, that was just so like, 
bona fide what I was doing because I have the same arguments. And you were doing it um, back, as you said, in the early 90s and teaching designers how to use cameras. And I was talking about transferable skills and I was talking to the guys before you came on about the same thing. Um, and hearing it from you was like, it was great to hear that someone of your caliber who's been doing this a long time had the same the same stories and the same experiences and the same uh, kind of issues in translation with other designers in, in different fields, you know? Because I have arguments with programmers sometimes because I'm the arty guy and I don't do things necessarily in a workflow that fits a programmer, you know? So that always comes back to mind. What about in terms of uh, personality traits? Would you say you're maybe similar in terms of how you operate or would there be a, a lot of differences between both of you? I know you're saying coming from a, a new and older generation or I suppose a, a more modern sort of process versus Kim, what you were doing back then. So, but um, how would you describe maybe was there many similarities in that sense? It's really it's pretty similar it really it really is it's it's not there's not that much difference he's just mm. using newer technologies than i did back then that's all it, it's it's pretty it's pretty similar we still have uh, art directors that are <clears throat> anyway and uh <laughs> that you're trying to um but um it's it's actually it's, it's pretty similar it's a guy in marketing you gotta watch out for you're always <laughs> yeah well now that's true <laughs> Um, yeah, I, I felt the same. Um, Kim, what I said to the guys earlier when we were talking about technology and art and emerging technology, that my experience is that it will never be, um, you'll never find anything special on without the human factor combined with the technology or the right lenses or the right camera. And my experience of that way before the AI argument or anything is I was actually asked to get people together to shoot to get other photographers for an event and i did um but these are people i knew who could talk a lot about cameras because they were in um they would have been in societies and clubs and stuff and maybe i mentioned this to you over breakfast i call it the camera club the camera club guy because in my experience in different parts of like whether it's software or cameras or equipment there's always someone who's like oh i wouldn't use that lens or this software is better than that software but they're not producing anything creative or anything that's actually worked, something that would blow me away. I know guys who could talk to the, to the wall about cameras, but I was told by the management of places that I, I, I was hired to bring in teams for, don't get that person back because, yeah, they know everything about a camera, but they couldn't take a photo. And it, maybe it was under the pressure. There's, there's all these other factors that come into it, as you know, for being a photographer, there's your social skills. There's, um, and that's the main thing, especially when you're photographing people. So even, you know, I, I, that, I never thought about it before that um, it's not, it's not like a good photographer should be able to shoot with anything, you know, it's what they see and what they feel. And, and that in the moment where they just catch something catches their eye and they're able to get that shot or, or, you know, like, when I'm shooting a wedding or an event for someone that I catch something out of the corner of my eye and made to grab that moment. Um, there's a big difference between that and someone who knows a lot about lenses, but can actually use it, you know, and it's the same. I, I hear my students going, I wouldn't use that software. I think this software is better. And I kind of go and look at them going, you failed my class in the other software. What are you talking about? You don't, you don't have the experience <laughs> to talk about this software yet, you know? 
you know? <laughs> and But I think part of it nowadays that might be a bit different is I find people always go, oh, yeah, there's a great plugin for that. Or, oh, I know an Instagram filter that would make that easier. And I used to be a bit like that years ago. And I think I accidentally became a good photographer because you go <laughs> off and you try out all of the different plugins and then you're going to go, actually, if I just learned the real way and you accidentally learned the real way because you realize the plugins actually suck, you know, when you want to do it the real way. Um, and then you just you end up realizing you got to appreciate how the, the process works. And for every Instagram filter out there and um, for everyone with a smartphone, somebody had to build that filter, which means that somebody had to study photography and had to know how to program Photoshop. And all of these things, but that's all forgotten about in the, on a day-to-day with someone with a smartphone, you know. Um, I may have gone off subject there a little bit. But, yeah, it usually just comes back to it has to be the, the magic of the human factor and the technology or the analog combined, the equipment and the human factor. They don't work without each other, you know, for me anyway. Well, the AI can work. Doesn't need the, doesn't need the people. But then you're going to get blah. You're yeah. going to get blah all the time. It's going to be the same thing all the time. And if you want to be... AI can be useful in the right hands. Yeah. That's the human factor. We have to be in charge of that AI. We have to be able to direct it. It's all these plugins, like you're talking about. The guys, we turn each other on to these different programs Mm. that are, you know, different filters. And uh, uh, even now, and it's more of what we can do to the film, the image. And it's like the sharpening. Because, well, like I've been scanning all the different all the old images and it's like wow you know what i wish we'd had this filter 20 years ago uh because of what the ai on sharpening can do and then you'll do it and on a certain ones and another ones and you go oh (laughs) can't use that filter on this one or we gotta we gotta back it off oh 10 percent no we gotta go back down to only 10 percent because yeah it looks like crap the ai says one thing but it's the human big time or you have have to look at it And how many times, Kim, sure, have you seen in the past that somebody gets photoshopped for the first time and they're just you they're learning those sliders in Lightroom? All their photos are just brightness contrast, you know, black and white and extremities, because they have to learn that it's the subtlety that grows with experience that makes the photo much more special. Like my argument today in college, we were talking about a film festival and the the guy, the main guys want me to come in and teach a class in the illustration for posters is in how to make a proper movie poster. And I was joking with them today going, I don't know how many times I see photographers who do amazing shots and then they stick the worst font as their signature in the corner of the photo. Comic Sans. Uh, if I, you know, <laughs> yeah, comics. Like I, when I teach, when I teach graphic design, the first thing we do is watch the Saturday Night Live bit with Ryan Reynolds giving out about the Avatar logo. I make them <laughs> nice. watch that. I go, that's graphic design. Yes. you know <laughs> so using papyrus font um because that it's it's such a common thing that again it's subtlety it's like you'll start out as a graphic designer going i want to use all these fonts and after 20 years you can name the only five you ever want to use on this is a specific <laughs> subject or specific mm-hmm. thing you know um so yeah again it's like like Kim said there, it's the 10% here and there, you know, getting it back to, to kind of get subtlety for me anyway. So you both have such expansive portfolios, but do you have like one piece that stands out to you that you're like especially proud of? I'll let Kim take that one. 
Well, I, you have to go all the way. We have to go. Well, I'm, the most, the one I really enjoyed the most, and I'm really proud of, is the Hoth battle scene. I nice. Did. You know that that's that's the one that uh, that took so long to do in time that is above normal. Usually, I do a you know do a scene and it might take a few hours to a day. Okay, this this literally was seven days of working on it, and then Roy Roy was on vacation. And he, he went off skiing. He said, oh, you know, you're, you're, Mark's got a project for you. And uh, it's a tabletop thing. No problem. I said, okay. So I went over and I talked to Mark. And it became the Hoth battle scene. It wasn't just a tabletop. It was the whole studio, you know, wow. basically. And and uh, so, yeah, <laughs> that was. And then Roy comes in. He goes, oh, wait a minute. I could get something better. And he sat there for two days trying to trying to tweak it. But here it is. I picked the lens for a specific reason. It was my lens, not his, <laughs> that I used on an eight by ten camera, and it was a five by seven lens. The whole it just wasn't that much to give, mm -hmm. and I knew that. And I went down to a theoretical f one twenty eight. I'm saying that because you know how the lens. Well, you may not know this, but there's sometimes the lens looks like f forty five or f thirty two, and then it goes. You can just keep on going. <laughs> I went on, I went all the way and I said, eh, it's about an F30, F, eh, give or take in that ballpark. Wow. Oh yeah. <laughs> That's the only way I could, it could happen. Yeah, I was definitely crazy, but I enjoyed it. <laughs> I enjoyed the heck out of it. I, that, I mean, so many things that could have, I mean, I had very, I, Mark came over once. I had the man that I was actually doing it for, if it Kenner, and actually walked in the door the, the basically the last day. And he goes in, I've been seeing, working on this thing for seven days. And he goes, he comes in, he looks at everything and he goes up and he goes, you know what? Turned off the one light that I was just using as a main light, just so I could see everything. And he goes, that's your shot. Wow. That was it. And it was like, yeah, it is. I had, I had dinks on everywhere. I mean, dinks were lighting that whole scene. So yeah. <laughs> If you've ever seen the individual shots where I've got, you'll see the lights, the grid work that I made, you understand. It's cool. We'll have to post I that. Had to figure out how to, I had to figure out how to do that. That was a labor of love to say the least. Yeah, it really was. It really was. Cause I look back on it and it, it how I would, how I did it. I'll <laughs> <laughs> the stuff, a lot of the things were, were, were hard copies. So they were heavy and I was holding them up with fishing line. Wow. <laughs> so what's the feeling like uh when you saw like the printed version of it for the first time oh it was a blast because that was actually the very first image that i was i've been told it was the very first image that was computer retouched by kenner oh wow back in 1982 ken i i think i can't remember if it was before we started recording but you were talking about the cover um the the masters of the universe oh cover. yeah um would that be the one yeah um, was that is that one of the ones you're most proud of? i remember being so excited when i got the text um from rebecca uh marks rebecca did all the talking online for mark taylor um so yeah i ended up doing the cover for the autobiography for mark taylor who uh created um he-man and skeletor for mattel and it was really fun because he had an idea in his head and um, but I came I came back at him with a different slightly different idea and he went with my one and why I really I had the frame behind me you know the, the Mark unfortunately died last year um at the I just around the very Christmas 22 
and uh, sorry, Christmas 21. And um, it's been on hold since. So it's still like the book is still in an, an edited draft version. So it hasn't been published. But I do have the, he showed off the frame picture at, um, at PowerCon, I think it was in 2019 or 2020. But what I really love about it is I was able to put all my nostalgic reference in. So there's the front cover is actually a kid with a wooden sword with these toys on the ground um, that was photographed in different parts, composited. It's actually my own son. And the kid is, is looking down at the wooden sword and pretending that he is um, He-Man. And behind him, it is He-Man. And um, what was really fun about um, about making it was, I have to actually look over my shoulder at it again. Um, the shield that my son is carrying, what, well, he didn't actually hold it because it's really heavy, but it's actually a bin lid that I went out to my mother's house because it was my grandfather's old bin, his old rubbish bin, because I used to use that lid as my He-Man shield as a kid. <laughs> so I put in the exact same shield and... Um, most of the reference, but like my, the He-Man I have looks realistic, but he's holding the plastic sword, the actual 1982 plastic sword. If you're ever looking online, um, it's so it looks thick, it looks mis, it the completely wrong proportions to what a human should be holding for a barbaric Frank Frazetta style sword. But it's the it's the toy sword on purpose because it's it's about this person who developed these toys and his experience, you know, um. And there's another artist that gave me a lot of inspiration and he's, his name has gone out of my head. Maybe you guys know, oh, what is it? He was this amazing oil paint artist who did these pictures of kids running down the street dressed up in like hockey gear and helmets, but their shadows showed them up as Darth Vader and Chewbacca and dressed up as the Avengers. And um, Does anyone know the artist I'm talking about? I can see the picture of it in my head. Uh, I, um, yeah, I can see the picture of it in my head. I'd Google it here. Kids artwork. I think it's Craig something. Uh, yeah, I found it. It was uh, Craig Davidson. That was it. Craig Davidson. But they're just amazing pictures. And they're done in that style of kind of oil painted illustration that anyone in the 80s would have seen in storybooks or coffee or other school books. Mm-hmm. And... That and what was really nice about that is when I went to, I was asked to go do the He Man to give a talk about He Man and the culture of Mass Universe for the 40th anniversary, which is 2022 in Tenerife last November. And when I walked in, I think this this was actually my biggest moment. I was in the hotel, and another great moment of meeting someone just like Kim with a like mindedness is uh, I walked out of the hotel and I was introduced to Howard Shaken. So Howard Chaikin is 72 and he actually studied under Jack Kirby who created Captain America. So he's been working in comics for 50 years wow. and he's so New York, Jewish, funny, deadpan, but he lives in California, but he's just, he's just incredibly funny and cold. And <laughs> just, I can't use the language he uses on the, on the podcast. Like when he's like, see that guy, hate that guy. Like real Hollywood, old competitive, and I'm walking along with him and, and he goes, so what's your work like? And we walk into the convention and all my work is on display beside his. Um, wow. We both have a gallery space right beside each other. 
But I didn't realize at the time how much of an influence Howard was. Like Howard did the very first 1970, one of the first 1976 Star Wars posters, the illustrated ones for a movie. And he did the first cover of Star Wars for Marvel. The first comic book. Amongst wow. millions of other things we've all seen. But I actually have one of his illustrations he gave me as a gift up on the wall behind me here. And that is um, an art director done in a real 70s style. An art director giving direction to the artist who's slaving away over the artboard right oh, nice. but i'm looking at the style going oh my god all the people who did our books like ann and barry those kind of illustrated books we had in ireland growing up in the 80s our our, our educational books were illustrated in the same way i'm looking at howard's drawing here right so when i look at craig davidson stuff here and then i look at howard's stuff on the wall i'm just like this stuff is so influential you know so it was just amazing to walk into um, this exhibition in Tenerife and uh, one of the guys uh, yep, exactly, that's how I felt uh, I walked in and uh, you know, you have got this guru uh, this legend of comic books going so what's your work look like? And he just like walked straight in and my stuff was the first thing in the door, it was on either side of the lobby and it was a huge Master Universe display with all my artwork and then his stuff was over beside mine and his was all the Captain America, Marvel um stuff like that you know but I, I just had to kind of just pinch myself and nudge my wife and going is that is that really my stuff and she was like oh my god no she's like i'd never seen because you know i just handed off my artwork to the the, the curator and mm-hmm. it was all blown up massive and it was all like a2 a1 full mounted prints everywhere you know um it was just it was, I was flabbergasted like you know so and I guess that happened as well because I had done the book cover for Mark, you know. Um, so, yeah, I think that was, I guess that's one of the biggest moments. That'd be my biggest He-Man related moment was walking into that show. Like Kim said, they're seeing it on a, seeing it on a shelf, you know, seeing it published, that's you know. Awesome. And then um, yeah. this year as well, uh, my bucket list was always to get on the front cover of my favorite magazine, which is Imagine Effects. And my, I wrote a tutorial about my process for them last year. And I used Skeletor as my subject for the toys and 3D scanning. And that Skeletor ended up as one of the nine pieces on their annual on the front cover for 2023. Wow. So two bucket lists ticked in, in one go, really. So <laughs> That's amazing. And, you know, you talk about surreal moments like that. And, Kim, I would imagine it, it's the same for you. And you you two are, are big on the content, you know, you go to cons, you like meeting people, interacting with fans and stuff like that. Has it ever sunk in or, or do you think it will ever sink in that the work that you guys have done will be the exact inspiration for other generations, you know, like the way you were inspired by other people whose work you admired? I'm, I'm told at every con that I, I gave them their childhood. Wow. There you go. Then I didn't give them their childhood. Their parents did. But I'm the one that I'm the one that gave them <laughs> all the ideas. <laughs> They're the ones that going out there in snow and the, with all with all the things out there in the snow or the whatever. And they're cr- trying to recreate all the packaging things that were on the packaging. But yeah, I I had the same. I'm not not the same thing. But I met up with a the man that I so I was trying to find his name because my mind went blank too. I was at a I was at a Photoshop seminar that Adobe used to put on many I guess they put it on uh, many years ago, and uh, I ran I just happened his work work was there and my work wasn't 
nobody knew what I was doing back in mm-hmm. those days. I mean, there wasn't, it wasn't out. And, but I grew up watching this guy, not him, but his work. I'd see his work out there. And then I got to stand right beside him and we were talking and we were both saying the same thing. Cause everybody's talking digital, digital, digital. Okay. Now this is going back into the nineties here. <clears throat> and I'm, I was digital. I was shooting digitally and I'm going, I'm, I'm telling you, and I'm standing right beside I'm sorry. I don't care what they say. There's nothing is going to be as good as that eight by 10 film. Eight by ten camera. It's just not. It's not. It's, it's not the field. And he looked at me. and said, "I totally agree with you completely. It's not there. It's just not. It's just not there. It's that whole look and feel that you get with that eight by ten. Well, it didn't take too long, but we were giving the quality of that eight by ten, but you still lack that feel of that. What that gives us." I mean, I've shot with the big, the big cameras that the big, these six shots, Hasselblads, and yeah, they're great. I love it. I love the camera. Don't get me wrong; that's a mm-hmm. fantastic mm-hmm. camera. But it, you don't have that f- same feel. Actually, and it, it, his, his name was Jerry Yulesman, by the way. I actually agree. I agree with. Sorry to interrupt. I, I agree with Kim on, on one point there as well that about the feel, because. As the technology grew, I was starting to take photographs with macro lenses and higher pixel cameras. And then I was doing a demo for my students one day and I had spray painted a transformer so that um, just a plain white prime color or gray so that we could Photoshop the textures back on. And I used one of the college beginner cameras with a plastic lens. And I actually got a better feel on the photo because of the softer pixels and look more like film than me trying to use a high-end camera that was making stuff sharper. And then we were at airbrush and it actually really ended up looking like a proper 80s airbrush product shot, you know, Dan is sharp, really 4K, amazing macro lens on a full frame, 20 something megapixel camera. This was shot on a 10 megapixel with an 18 and 55 kit lens and it looked way better. And I actually ended up going from that discovery using going reverse engineering and using cheaper cameras and and, and lenses and I ended up using my really good portrait and my macro lens turned out was really good for shooting gigs for getting portraits of people on stage in a more like Kim just said there about the lens that um, if you have a certain lens you're restricted to your angles I used to take this lens down to uh, the place here where all the dead metal bands play in Limerick because it makes me think about how to get the shot because you can't get every angle and I ended up getting these really cool artistic shots that actually capture the crowd as well as the performance. And that was using a macro lens that was built to take photographs of small objects. And then I'm using the crappy 50 mil lens or 28 mil. That was a cheap piece of crap to photograph the models because I preferred a softer look because it looks more like, um, I guess, nostalgic for me, you know? A lot of the guys I know, they're still practicing, they're still working. They're using Mm. older lenses for their portraits, for their portraits. They, they, you know, they're, they're, they really are. They're, they've got this fantastic, the latest, greatest camera out there right now. That they're then the thirty-five form. I say thirty-five format, and yet they'll go back to their older, slightly older lenses. They'll say, "This is an artsy lens. This is what gives me what I want." Yeah, I'm, I have my hundred mil. Like I, I had to run to the college today for uh, a meeting about a warm up for a film festival next week, and uh, they were doing some practice runs. I just threw that same lens. Onto my my new R six, 
I threw my 10-year-old macro lens bang straight onto the camera in the bag. No, didn't even think about it, you know, what lens I was going to use. I just put the 100 mil on the, the new camera into the bag. Um, I feel sometimes, I don't know how you feel about it, Kim, but every time a new lens comes out and they have image stabilizers and 4K video, and then it's 8K is the next one. It's like the human eye can only take so much. It can only see and filter so much. Mm-hmm. And um, the sharper we make things, it feels like, yeah, now we need more filters and more plugins to make it look like the stuff we actually like, you know? You can get, too, you can, yeah, definitely yeah. get too sharp. I can I mean, it's, 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 and this is a guy that likes, he would have been a member of the F64 club. So, yeah, I know. I, 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 I like sharpness. I like that depth of field. But at the same time, you know, you yeah. sacrifice. In the- well, the best thing I've seen on a camera recently is my new cameras that have flip screens and touchscreen focus. I mean, I don't have to get into really awkward positions for my lower back to try and get the angle I want when I can just look down at the flip screen and go, oh, that's cool. And I can press one of my 70 million points of focus and just hit that and get the corner or get the facial expression I wanted instead of having to go central focus and move the camera and bend over. And, you know, that's the best thing, but, um, it's still. Yeah. I just, I just, I just connect my, my laptop to my, my, my hustle blog when I'm shooting the set and I'll, and then I will focus. I'll tell the camera where I want it to focus. And what I'll have to do because of this set is, is literally eight feet wide, six feet deep. And not don't worry about how high it is because the Millennium Falcon's up there. It's going to be well. That's going to have to be one shot, and I'm probably going to do two two shots of the scene and bury them together. But I want it here and I want it there, and the rest of it let it go. And then, but I got to have the Millennium Falcon. You've got to have the Millennium Falcon in focus. That cannot yeah. not be in focus. Mm-hmm. <laughs> is that um? Is that sort of a? a- big takeaway do you think that's something that's sort of lacking now is that the the sort of old school magic isn't used often enough you know trying to produce photos with that feeling of nostalgia i suppose maybe that emotional connection to to the products or do you think Gar- I sorry can tell you. Gonna, i was going to just say no, to gary as someone of my age group that are we, we see, I, I read an article that says that we're Xenial, right? We're in between Generation X and Millennial because we were of an analog childhood brought into the digital because we started digital getting, age. We are getting Nintendos and stuff like that in our when we were 10 and 12, right? Everyone after that completely grew up in a digital age. You know what I mean? So mm-hmm. what you're asking me and Kim and about the, the romanticized, as a psychologist told me about this actually, episodic memory. And how we hold on to those memories of our childhood and we look at Kim's box art and we look at the photos, maybe our generation is the only generation and generations previously who like, because remember Howard telling me about this when he was talking about his inspiration for Marvel stuff. He gave me a list of movies from the 30s and 40s. And I think Kim, was he, you were telling me about the, the cowboy set that you had growing up, maybe a play set. Um, that the newer generations don't have that nostalgic magic so much that that it would appeal to them in that way. Like they kids don't. now will go, oh, that's a save icon. You'll go, no, that's a floppy disk. <laughs> yeah. You know what I mean? Does that make sense? Yeah, no, it does. Yeah. Mm-hmm. 
So is is that a, a sort of could you say then that sort of the maybe what the likes of yourselves did could could that sort of be seen now in let's say the the modern digital age as being sort of a a niche area in the sense that you're trying to replicate and produce that real old school nostalgic I, feeling. I I think well for me with the artwork I'm doing. People our age group, people in their late 30s, early 40s, as far as their 50s, have complimented my work in a way that kind of catches me off guard at conventions because I just see it as something I love to do for myself. And because it resonates with them, because I have the minutiae of styles that are taken from different factors of nostalgia, what, how I choose colors, how I choose silhouette, how I choose what's going to be photograph, what's going to be digital, what's going to be 3D, because most of my images have a bit, all the backgrounds in my artwork um, and the landscapes are taken from sections of Ireland. You know, I have the cliffs from Donegal. Actually, I use a lot of parts of Donegal where they had the Millennium Falcon for episode eight because uh, I was up around there a couple of years back. Um, but things like that. Um, and I even have this book in front of me that I always keep. I know no one who's going to listen to this is going to be able to hear it, but it's called Designing Children's Rooms for Kids. From And I think this... <laughs> and what's really funny about this book, the photography in it is old school. This book was published in 1985 and my mother had it. But I found it so inspirational because the bedrooms in it were like, I want this bedroom and this one showed how it displayed Star Wars toys and He-Man toys. But if I showed you the inside of this book now, this is the book, I got it off a trip store on eBay for six bucks. The inside of this looks like an Ikea catalog. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Because Ikea is trying to capture that sense of magic nostalgia with their, their colors. And this, Netflix are very good at it in their style. Like if you've seen them, the TV shows like Sex Education, where this floral wallpaper, Gillian Anderson is dressed in a cat suit. Everyone drives a mid, mid-90s Volvo. You haven't a clue what year it is until someone takes out a smartphone. Do you know what I mean? So there's a, there's a, there's a sense of nostalgia in now. And they did it with a couple of other shows where they kind of kept everyone looking like it was the grunge scene in Seattle. But I don't know. Sorry, your question was about more, um, are we replicating? I'm not sure if it's replicating, but more taking all the influences to create something new. But it has enough influences that people connect to it. Yeah. Great answer, by the way. So we we want to talk a little bit about the Kenner Star Wars photography oh, yeah. book. Uh-huh. Um, which one? Which oh, one? Oh, sorry, we mentioned, I think, the, the Kickstarter uh, that's going on at the moment, Kim. Ah, the Kickstarter, yeah, the yes. new one, the, the, which is actually a re, re uh, it's, we're putting out the, we're hoping the Kickstarter will be funded, where the, uh, oh, I found a, uh, we've added 30 more pages to it, found some other images that we hadn't to the first volume. It's volume one where we're putting back. Volume one originally was a paperback because it was like, we could cheapest way we could get it done but still have it done here in the united states i have this thing about going offshore and whenever possible uh stay here and in fact i'm using the same printing company that did a lot of the star wars no not the kenner catalogs wow so and, I, and the coin too they they the company that just not two blocks away did their coins well i'm using them i can go see all the stuff being done I can go go on the press checks myself and look at them. Mm-hmm. And these guys actually know what what's supposed to be, yeah. what you know, you know what colors they're supposed to be, whether they're you know 
Greedo is the right green or whatever. <laughs> or no, there's a little bit too much pink in there for some reason or another. So, you know, they, 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 they get it dialed in so close that I'm in there looking at it going, yeah, this is great. I just drove what? 45 minutes to get here to see this <laughs> and just say, yeah, it's good. And it, it's nice. good right out of the shoot. Um, so, but it, it's, it's, this book is the very first one, volume one. It's going to be the deluxe 30 extra pages of things that literally some of the stuff I have no idea what it was used for. And that's us to God's truth. I, I, I've, I've talked to a couple of the, the still the designers that actually did everything and they say, where'd you get that? And I said, it was in my files. I saved everything, <laughs> everything that I could. Wow. There's a whole story behind that one. <laughs> and and um, and there, there's a lot of stuff that was lost before I was able to grab a hold of it. But some of the stuff is like, well, he said, well, Ray Persick would have known what that is because that was probably Ray, Ray Persick had a bright idea and ran it up the flagpole to Art Hefner and probably Art Hefner shot it down. We or said, "Well, let's pursue it a little bit more, or whatever." We don't know. There's different things, and uh, but it's something that was done. And somebody's—they're always wanting to see these different things and different images. Well, there's 30 extra pages of more things, and it is hardbound. And plus, that's one of them that I've got. I'm working on this poster, which had a—I've been on hiatus now for. 12 days because pat's been was in the hospital so um so i wasn't doing anything and i'm still waiting on some of the things that in fact the more the longer it takes the longer that 3d guy with the printer is he's coming up with you need to have this kim and you need to have that and I'm going, really <laughs> he said don't let me take over don't let me take i said no 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 i like all the little detail stuff you're putting you're you're, you're printing up because i can't do it i've got a 3d printer right here having a clue how to make it work. I tried to make it work and it went everywhere. So I said, no, no, not going to play this. He said, he'll come out and help me with it. Get me on the right track. But no, it's, it's, then we're going to have the coin, which is still up here. The design for it is still up here. And then, uh, then I did, we've already laid out and designed out. I actually did it. The uh, image for the wrap. I'm going to have a, a, um, a slip cover for all four hardbound books. Hmm. and it's it's all star wars imagery and it's it looks pretty cool it's on it's on the site so you, actually, awesome. I, I did i did show it on and the I was, site i can vouch i've seen these in real life uh, they're amazing are we right um kim it's just under 50 days left to contribute on kickstarter am i right i think so i'm be honest i'm not even paying attention i can't and i I've, I've got justin who is doing who's running it and through my wife Pat, and then he tells me, Kim, you need to do a need to do a show, you need to do a video, talk. And he's okay. You're gonna talk about okay. I can do that. And because it's kind of like if I start micromanaging, it'll get really screwed up. Well, there's a <laughs> there's an open invitation to come on here for an episode and just talk about the the book. If if ever you want to come back there on and go. just chat about the book, we we would love to have you. Oh, just anytime. You just have, you just have to reach out and yell. That's all you got to do. <laughs> Guys, I have to say, this has been one of the most interesting episodes we have done for a while. And sure. we can't thank you guys enough for taking the time to come out and have a chat with us. It's always fantastic to talk to folks like yourselves who have been in the industry and who are 
you know, have been at the top of their game for a long, long time. And obviously, Kim, you've been had worldwide success for a long time. And Ken, your work just continues to grow and it's getting more and more well known around the world and rightly so as well. So to to have both of you oh, in gosh. one episode, it, it it's an absolute pleasure for, for us. You know, we're just a, a small little podcast in Ireland trying to do interviews that we think are interesting and that people will enjoy. So we honestly can't thank you both enough for um for, for coming on to chat with us. But just before we let you go, would you be able to tell us your social media uh, information and where people can keep up with everything that's going on with you both? And they got take it away. Um. Oh, yeah, oh sorry. I was going to say, Kim, you go first. But uh, I'm just at Ken R. Corp on Instagram. Uh, you just find me at Art to Ken Coleman on Facebook. But most of my, I, I kind of keep my own stuff and my He-Man stuff separate. So Art Ken Coleman, you'll find, or artkencoleman.com is my website that has a bit of everything in it. So so that's me. Our Ken's Motu Projects is my Facebook for all my, my super, super nerdy stuff. So I've, Mine is the, the, uh, the man who shot Luke Skywalker. <laughs> uh, that's, the, that's kind of simple. Uh, at .net is, or .com, either one um have them both and um, they they i don't do twitter and i don't do instagram but justin does like i <laughs> if somebody comes up with a question that they they ask he, he he's he's right he's messaging me really quick and saying kim i need an answer for this i won't go on there i'll get myself in so, too much trouble so i don't do that one but facebook i'm there um try to be there as much as i can um it's the man who shot Luke Skywalker uh, on Facebook. That's that's the simplest way because I answer everybody. It might take me sometimes. I try to get them right away, but lately it's been a little harder for me to get to it. But if if, if the weather turns nice, I'm in my workshop, <laughs> or I'm out in the woods, <laughs> or you know, and if the weather's bad, I'm inside here. So, something, something Kim that we didn't explain to people when they asked about the prior artist process is uh, procrastination is extremely important <laughs> you know for for working it out of and course. let your subconscious take over so when the weather rarely gets good here in Ireland you will not find me at my desk I'm off in the woods with a camera and an action figure taking some <laughs> photos you know for process not tossing for process you know <laughs> You guys have inspired me. I think I'm going to have to take my action figures out here in Georgia. We got some woods right in our backyard. So awesome. I'll have to take some pictures. <laughs> guys, again, um, thank you so much for this. And um, Kim, much love to Pat and, you know, speedy recovery for her as well as she, as the days go on. So um, until next time, we'll just say guys, uh, may the force be with you and Ken by the power of Grayskull. Fair play. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so that was the twofer. <laughs> we've we've done a few multi-interviews, um, but like I said, that was one of the more interesting, and I think you will agree, listeners. It was. It was so fun to be part of. I mean, again, the the expertise and the stories from the two of them. It's it's incredible what they do. I mean, they are artists in every sense of the word, mm -hmm. but just super nice people. And, you know, we, we could have sat talking all day. I mean, oh, before for we sure. started recording, we, we know how long we were chatting away with before we hit the mm -hmm. record. Button. And after. There was so much more. And, and after, <laughs> of course. And there was so much more we could have added in. But 
for now that was part one of our two-part build up to Dublin Comic Con episodes mm-hmm. and we can't wait to share uh, part two with you yes anything else before we close this episode out well for part one I suppose it's alright for us to announce now isn't it that Blab Alive will once again be returning to Dublin Comic Con so in the next month we are effectively putting on three live shows we will be doing Blab Alive at Dublin Comic Con there will also be a Blab Alive at Boon to Eve, which is one of the launch events before Star Wars Celebration kicks off. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, there is the big one for which we are over the moon to say that Blab Alive will be returning to Star Wars Celebration itself. And that's going to be a very Ireland-centric live show. Very, so. very Ireland-centric show, and of which we can hopefully reveal more as, as time progresses. Yes, it sounds like good times we should do some kind of bingo card for for anyone who can get to all three of the live shows yeah we should maybe come up with a pin or a patch or something should that'd be cool anybody who came to all three yeah yeah we can maybe look we can maybe look into i'm sure you can work your magic on something kate that'd be cool anywho i guess i don't have anything else for this one so until next time until next time which will be very soon May the force be with you.